Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. My name is Arlen Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King, Lord, we're delighted to call you Father and to call you Lord. We know that by your very Spirit, you have come into our hearts and opened our eyes and allowed us to be at a place where we can know with a certainty that we are forgiven of our sins, that we've been brought into this right relationship with you. And Lord, we can be assured that your words are true, they're reliable, they're trustable, they are the anchor for our soul, and we thank you that it is your Spirit that activates them and causes them to come alive so that we can walk out lives that are pleasing to you, so that we can turn from sin, so that we can fellowship with one another. Bless you, Lord, for all of these wonderful opportunities. Continue to strengthen us, uh, give us a hope beyond hope. Help us to uh, continue to cling to you, uh, even as there are so many difficulties and confusing um, events happening in the world around us. Uh, Seems like the pandemic was just the tip of the iceberg, and now we've got all these other um, problems with the economy and inflation and rising gas prices and rising food prices and war in Ukraine and Lord just seems like the world is spinning out of control but it's not it's not if we trust in you and we continue to keep our eyes on your son Yeshua then we will know um, uh, that uh, uh, that you've got a plan and that you're working things out we just need to keep our hand tightly clasped to yours and we'll make it through so help us to keep trusting in you and be careful to give you the praise and glory of Hashem Yeshua Amen all right, thank you everyone for joining me week after week for these live internet studies, which include the Matthew 9, 14 through 17 study, as well as the Shema, uh, exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity study that's going to uh, kick in about uh, 30 minutes from now. So let's uh, dive right back into our Matthew 9 study. Remember, as you can see on my screen, I've got this passage pulled up from the book of Matthew. It's labeled in the ESV as a question about fasting, but it might not all be about fasting. Let me read the passage for you real quick, and then we'll jump into a new pastor's commentary tonight. Um, The passage reads this way, starting in verse 14 of Matthew chapter 9. Then the disciples of John came to him, speaking of Yeshua, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Verse 15, And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Continuing in verse 16, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Verse 17, Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst in the whole wine, I'm sorry, and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wine skins and so both are preserved. End quote. What we've been doing in this study is working our way through a commentary that I put together. You can see on my screen right now. And we've already looked at examples from gotquestions.org, a, uh, an apologetics ministry. We looked at an example from um, Dr. or um, Pastor John MacArthur. We looked at an example from Pastor John Piper. And so now we're ready to look at an example from Pastor David Guzik. And I chose these examples specifically because they are easily web accessible. I could have chosen commentary pastors that you find only in books or like, you know, expository volumes of Bibles that are like really, really thick or uh, pastors that you only find if you buy like um, Bible software like Accordance or something like that. But instead, I chose pastors that are not only well-known and well-trusted, but are easily accessible to anyone with internet access, right? Uh, Pastor Guzik, Pastor MacArthur, uh, Got Questions. um, And and so um, these 
are uh, people you can just Google search them. So let's go here. Pastor, uh, let's start now with the example from Pastor David Guzik. So let's just pick up my own uh, commentary right where you see it on the screen. He, these are my words. I'd like to include just one more traditional, well-known, well-respected Christian pastor before I turn to a popular Messianic Jewish author and then to Tim Haig, who's one of my favorites, to provide some concluding thoughts. And as you guys already know, we're talking about specifically this um, topic of Judaism versus Christianity. Are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? Did Christianity come into the scene, come onto the scene to replace the aging and worn out religion known as Judaism? Um, the working title is uh, Judaism v. Christianity. And the idea is that when you read through that um, parable or story that we just read in Matthew, Yeshua is obviously trying to explain some incompatibilities between something older and something newer, right? The uh, the idea of fasting for one reason versus fasting for a different reason. The idea of an old patch and a new, and a, I'm sorry, a new patch and an old piece of cloth, uh, you know, an old clothing or old wine and new wineskins or old wineskins and new wine. You know, we can kind of apply the logic back and forth. And so clearly, Yeshua is giving us a principle of something that's incompatible with something else. But our job as Bible students is to ascertain what is the incompatibility and does, does it require throwing something out and replacing it with something else, right? We haven't even really, really talked about this yet, but let me just kind of give you some hints. If you read through the, um, the story that we just read, which shows up in two other Gospels, actually, um, not starting with the, uh, the fasting uh, example, but if you look at the, 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 the cloth example, clearly the, the cloth is needing to be patched. So we're not really throwing anything out right? We're actually patching something with the idea of keeping the older garment. So in that example, if Judaism is the old garment and, and the gospel is the unshrunk piece of cloth or something like that of Christianity, in that example alone, Judaism doesn't get tossed out if it's the old garment. Instead, it gets patched up, right? So that's inconsistent with what many pastors would say is that Christianity is here to replace Judaism. Judaism is this old cloth that needed to be tossed out. Christianity is this new cloth that needs to be brought on the scene. Wait a minute. Yeshua doesn't say that we're throwing out the old garment. He says we're patching it, at least in the example. And then we move on to the second example about the wine and old wines and things like that. Again, same principle is applied. The new wine isn't put into old wineskins, but the solution isn't to throw out the old wineskins. It's to put new wine into fresh wineskins or to condition them. In one of the other examples, I think it's in Luke's rendering, um, if we, if we um, prepare the old wineskins, that is to say, condition them to receive the new wine, then again, we're able to preserve the wineskin and the new wine without destroying both the wine and the wineskin. In fact, Yeshua hints at that. He says, if the, you know, the skins will burst and the wine is built and the skins are destroyed, right? So that's a bad thing if the new wine goes in and the old wineskins burst, right? As if Christianity is incompatible with Judaism, right? As if Judaism is this old wineskin that's going to be destroyed 
Christianity if we try to fit Christianity into it. But wait a minute, Yeshua says, but new wine, that's the um, gospel, I guess, is put into fresh wineskins. What happened to the old wineskins? I guess they've been refreshed. They've, In fact, the word for fresh there in the Greek is a word um, that's rooted in the word um, um, uh, koine, uh, uh, which has to do with refreshing or refurbishing. And look at Yeshua's final few words. He says, and so both are preserved. So if in this example of the wine, one of them is Christianity or the gospel and the other is Judaism, why does Yeshua say that both are preserved similar to the garment? Right? In the garment example, both are also kept. The patch and the garment are the goal of keeping them both. So, with the wine. So, think about that for a second. Those of you who are already convinced that Yeshua is talking about replacing Judaism with Christianity, removing one for in favor of the other, tossing out one because it's not compatible with the other. Even at face value, if you look at the examples, right, not barring uh, what they what those examples are talking about, the examples themselves don't necessitate the destruction or removal of the of the um, imperfect items or the items that that have their defects. You know, the 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 the, the older piece of cloth and the older wine skin. You know, the, the things like that. It seems like the goal is to actually to keep them both. So let's talk about that. All right, so in my own thoughts, we are going to look at um, some more Christian authors, one more, and then we're going to look at uh, Tim Hague, and then we'll try to conclude what I think a better way to understand this passage is. I continue. In this examination, right, that we've been going through, I purposely tried to stick to internet resources, just like I said earlier, due to their ease of access by any and all Christians with a computer or smartphone or smartwatch or things like that, tablet computer. After all, many clergymen and professional Bible teachers often utilize differing types of expensive Bible software, right? This is what I'm talking about. Not that it's wrong to have Bible software. I think it's a great benefit and a tool that I highly recommend, but you know, that comes with a price tag that not all of us can afford. But um, so they dig into the background and I say they dig into their commentaries behind scriptural texts. And if you're like me, if you are like me, many times you simply cannot afford such software as fine and valuable as they may prove to be in unlocking more of God's words for those who use them. So again, I'm not knocking all of those resources. On the contrary, I wish I had an unlimited budget where I could afford those things. I simply don't. So I try to use resources that are available to everyone. So continuing, I say, so this was an exercise for us, quote, average church-going folks, unquote, who have a Bible and a computer with internet and yet are hungry to dig a bit deeper. That's why I said the internet resources are the ones that I like to go for, go to first. And again, if I have option options, then I go for other resources that maybe aren't available on the internet. Continuing, Pastor David Guzik has been producing verse-by-verse commentaries on the whole Bible for as long as I can remember studying the Bible. If you've never heard his name, this is your first time you're hearing it, David Guzik, I think in the past I've said Guzik, but I think it's Guzik, G-U-Z-I-K. Um, fantastic resource, just do a Google search for it, David Guzik. And he, like Pastor John MacArthur has a commentary on every single verse of the Bible. That's fantastic that he has 
that he has the time and the resources to put together uh, his thoughts on every single verse of the Bible. Not that he's always right, or that he's always accurate, or that he hits the nail every time, but at least he's providing some place to start from where you can begin your search and begin to dig deeper. And um, uh, it's always good to take what I call the scientific approach, where you bring in more resources rather than few resources, so that you can begin to compare resource against resource and begin to ascertain which ones are stronger, which ones are weaker. So, continuing in my own commentary. So, uh, all I can say is that to a all I can say to that is a hearty amen. Right? He's no rookie. And uh, I go on to talk about the fact that his sermons and commentaries come highly recommended. And plus, like Pastor MacArthur, he makes his resources relatively free to access by anyone with a computer and the internet. There's the boon right there, right? There's the bonus, is that um, he put together all these resources. I mean, years and years of research and yet he just puts them out there for free. I mean, praise God that he's got the uh, the resources himself to be able to offer these up. He could easily have charged for them, right? Verse by verse commentary in every single verse of the Bible, but he makes them available for free. So, uh, praise God for that. I continue. His views are not extreme in any way that I can tell, and by his expositions, he consistently upholds the foundational doctrinal truths of the faith and convictions that I personally hold to myself. So neither is he like he's not out there in left field. He doesn't come along with some strange, what you might call sensational teachings, like it's so rampant on the internet these days. You got to be careful who you're paying attention to, who you're sitting under, who you're opening your mind up to. You know, anybody and everybody with a uh, with a computer can post their views on the internet, and not all of it is healthy. I continue. As with Pastor MacArthur and Pastor Piper already mentioned, I can only pray that I myself will one day have the honor of developing into the measure and level of Bible teacher that these great men of faith already operate at. And I say that with all sincerity, no um, superficiality in, in, in my writing there, no, um, no um, you know, irony or anything like that, no, no um, uh, uh, teasing of words or anything like that. Um, honestly, when I listen to these men preach, I can, I can hear in their voice their, the sincerity. When I listen and watch their videos, when I read their commentaries, I can sense that they've spent time not just in the text, but sometimes equally or more importantly, they have spent time on their face before God. They've spent time soaking up the Spirit of God. They've spent time honoring and worshiping Yeshua and giving Him the preeminence for all that they, uh, all that, that they um, are able to accomplish in their ministries. So I can sense that they have this deep personal relationship with God, and I, I value that. Right? I want men like that speaking into my life. Right, and you do too, right? You want people who have not just this great knowledge of, of things of the Bible, right? They're seminarians and they can rattle off all the Hebrew and the Greek and the Aramaic and they know all the, the ins and outs of all the, the expository uh, parts of the Bible. You don't want just a professor who can teach you about the Bible. You actually want a man of God who is humble, who is yielding who is not afraid to um, call Jesus Lord and um, admit that Jesus is his first love. You've, you want someone who can um, um, let the Holy Spirit 
flow freely through his ministry and through his writings and through his teachings. You want that kind of person speaking into your life. Someone who's got a, a, a decent track record, has been around for a while without any uh, types of scandals and, 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 and red flags in his life and things like that. And so I think I've done a good job in, in picking uh, those types of people for this particular commentary, right? Um, Pastor Piper, Pastor Guzik, Pastor MacArthur, and, and even gotquestions.org's uh, ministry and things like that. So... Um, so I say, that being said, let's see what Pastor Guzik has to say about Yeshua's parable in Matthew 9, 15 through 17. I, I meant to say 14 through 17 there. I guess I have a typo. All right, so these are Pastor Guzik's words. Now, again, my preface is that just because someone is a stalwart, staunch, trustable, reliable man of God doesn't mean that they're going to be perfect in their interpretation. We all have weaknesses when it comes to biblical interpretation. We all get some things 100% right and other things where we're not quite accurate. This just demonstrates to me that we all need one another. We need to help one another. And so if I could broadly divide the body of Messiah into the element known as Gentile Christianity and the element known as Jewish Christianity, then what we would see is that we both have perspectives that we bring to the table and it is really the harmony of working together cohesively to help explain the Bible that we really um, want and desire and I think makes for the best um, experience of studying the Bible, which is why it's so unfortunate that there are so many people in Gentile Christianity who have cut themselves off from the Hebraic roots of their faith. They don't really give Jewish Christianity or Messianic Judaism or the Hebraic Roots Movement a um, a second thought. Or what they have been taught is, you know, all of the messy parts of Messianic Judaism, right? Those first few letters, M-E-S-S-Y. And so instead of Messianic, they end up with messy antics. Understand what I'm saying there? Hear my play on words? So it's a shame. But there are very, very good, very well, solid, grounded um, um, Bible teachers out there, Bible uh, Messianic rabbis that I could recommend, which why I keep turning to Tim Hagen over and over again. He's one of my favorites because he's such a, a pillar of, of information and source of reliable truth, even though there are things that I disagree with Tim Hagen on, right? The point I'm trying to bring is, if we could get people like Pastor Piper, MacArthur, and Guzik to kind of sit down with people like, um, you know, um, uh, Tim Haig, and uh, uh, maybe some of the other Messianic Bible teachers that I've mentioned in the past. I'm just mentioning Tim Haig off the top of my head. Um, but if we could get them to sit down with people like that and maybe take each other a little bit more seriously, but then too, I'm not saying all the faults on the Gentile Christian side of the house. I know Messianic teachers who also just write off Christian Bible teachers. I've sat under Messianic rabbis who say, well, I don't really get anything out of Christian Bible teachers anymore. I'm like, well, that's a shame. Because there's a lot that Christian Bible teachers, Gentile ones, have got right, right? They, they, they have a lot of the foundational parts, the, the pillars of our faith that you need to always not to be moved, right? People like Pastor MacArthur, Pastor Guzik, and Pastor Piper, right? Those are guys that you want to have in your arsenal of truth. So let's look at Pastor Guzik's uh, notes, and uh, we'll spend just the next 10 minutes or so. I don't think we'll finish this tonight, but we'll take a bite out of it, a good uh, bite of it. So, this is a commentary on the Matthew passage where we, remember, we just talked about kind of three elements to the uh, scriptural um, passage. There's the part that talks about fasting, right? The bridegroom and the bride and the fasting aspect. That's the first part of three. The second part is the example about the um, cloth, right? And the patch that gets 
sewn to the cloth. And then the third part of three, three of three, is the um, part of Yeshua's example that talks about the wine and the wineskin. So having read that example, example, now let's look at Pastor Guzik. He says, quote, nor do they put new wine into old wineskins or else the wineskins break. Here's his explanation. With this illustration of the wineskins, Jesus explained, you ready for it, that he did not come to repair or reform the old institutions of Judaism, but to institute a new covenant altogether. I'm pausing for effect, letting the silence kick in. Did you see it? Pastor Guzik believes that the wineskins, which is similar to Pastor Piper and Pastor MacArthur, and got questions, right? Everyone that I've named so far. All of them seem to use the wineskins as one of the primary parts of Yeshua's example that drives the point home, perhaps it's in that order because Yeshua saved the best for last, that Yeshua didn't come to repair Judaism. It was irreparable at that point in time. It was broken down to the point where it needed to be reformed, or as I, to use modern pop um, reference terminology, the franchise needed to be rebooted, right? So Jesus came to reboot the franchise known as Judaism and to um, uh, not give a prequel, not give a sequel, right? He, he actually rebooted it all together. So um, kind of like, you know, they rebooted Star Trek with the new Star Trek characters and things like that. I even read an article earlier that um, this week that there, that Lucasfilm, you know, uh, Disney might actually even someday reboot Star Wars, right? the 1977 original Star Wars, A New Hope, Episode 4. And then along with that, they're going to have to reboot Empire Strikes Back, Episode 5, and then Return of the Jedi. Right? I'm thinking, what? Wait a minute. I watched Star Wars when I was 10. I mean, that was just classic. I mean, there was nothing else like it. Why reboot it? Was there anything wrong with it? So look at this. According to Pastor Guzik, Judaism was broken down. It was irreparable. And so Jesus didn't come to repair it or reform it. He came to actually just bring in the new covenant altogether, which means in this example... As he continues on, he says, the new covenant doesn't just improve the old. Guzik says it replaces it and goes beyond it. Now, again, in all fairness, if in your terminology, old covenant is the relationship of God where you think that you can work your way into heaven, where you think that your own merits are going to gain you salvation, where you think that the keeping of the commandments is what equals a, a ticket into heaven, then yes, new covenant, which teaches that salvation is available only through the finished work of Messiah Yeshua, as you confess him as Lord and allow him to um, take up residency in your heart via the Holy Spirit, as you allow the old man to die and the new man to be rebirthed, as you go through the um, um, being born again experience, right? Your sins are forgiven. The debt is paid for, right? If that's your definition of new covenant, then yes, it is true that new covenant replaces and goes beyond old covenant. However, there's equivocation or ambiguity on the phrase old covenant as it's utilized by many Christians and, and uh, Christian pastors and things like that. Most Christians utilize the word Old Covenant as if it is tantamount to saying Old Testament or Law of Moses or first five books of Moses or the earlier part of your Bible that Jewish people would call the Tanakh. Many Christians call that part of the Bible Old Testament or Old Covenant. But if you actually read through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and you encounter this term that's used by Paul in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 
then you're going to find out that, I, I'm sorry, I think it's 2 Corinthians chapter 3, not 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Now I'm drawing a blank. It's one of the Corinthians books. I think it's 2 Corinthians. But um, Paul uses the phrase Old Covenant, and you'll find there that he's not talking about a set of scriptures in and of themselves, although he does reference something that the people can read meaning Moses, when Moses is read. So it is something that's accessible uh, that you can read, but that's not the full explanation. Rather, what Paul's trying to describe is the, the unbeliever's experience, no matter what he's reading, no matter what set of scriptures. And so the Old Covenant doesn't necessarily have to be the Old Testament that's thrown out. Instead, what Paul wants us to understand is that as Yeshua moves into your heart and unlocks the truth of the Bible in your mind and makes it come alive, then you can retain the Old Covenant, you can retain the scriptures that were given to Israel of old, and they can be made new again to you, they can be made alive to you as your eyes are open to the truth of the Messiah found therein. Therefore, you can begin to walk out the truths of the Bible in a way that you never could before. So let's keep reading Pastor Guzik and have him um, continue to explain his perspective. So, But so far, it seems to me that if I understand Pastor Guzik at face value without him explaining it to me personally, he believes that there isn't room for the Old Testament, the Law of Moses, the Tanakh, etc., the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. There isn't room for that in the life of a believer who is a New Testament Christian, which is basically the standard part and parcel or the standard song and dance of mainstream historic Christianity. Let's keep reading Pastor Guzik. He says, quote, but they put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. So again, he's commenting on the wineskins one, which is why I highlighted it. His, um, his uh, comments, he says, Jesus' reference to the wineskins was his announcement that the present institutions of Judaism could not and would not contain his new wine. Again, we're talking about the gospel message that Jesus came to preach. According to Pastor Guzik, the old wineskin of Judaism couldn't and wouldn't be able to hold the new wine of the gospel that Jesus was teaching. Again, if Pastor Guzik is taking old Judaism and the old wineskin, and he's using it only to describe that man-made version of Judaism, the man-made version of keeping the law of Moses that was a merit theology, a law uh, keeping that resulted in salvation, a works theology, where we're saying that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the than the people of Israel in Yeshua's day, that what they believed in was merit theology, work salvation, keep the Torah to become saved. If that's the caricature that's so common in Christianity, if that is accurate, which by the way, I don't think it is, but if that's the case, then yes, it's true. The genuine gospel can't simply move in and reform that type of errant theology. That errant theology, that replacement, I'm sorry, that... um. Uh, uh, works theology, merit theology, it has to go. It's wrong. It's it's irreparable. It can't simply be um, refurbished. So I understand that. So if that's what Pastor Guzik is talking about, and it's likely that it is, 
Because as I sit and listen to most Christian pastors, and this is just kind of a side note, most Christian pastors believe that Judaism of the first century is a works-based religion where merit theology was the order of the day. I don't believe that that's what Judaism was teaching in the first century. Um, if you want to know what I do believe, write in and ask me, or ask me in, my, in the comment section below down in this video, hey, Ariel, what, how do you believe the Jewish people uh, factored in their personal salvation in the first century? What did they believe in in personally for salvation, and I'll write more on about that. Okay, but let me continue with Pastor Guzik. He says, speaking of Jesus, he would form a new institution called the church. Again, this is, I don't know how else to describe it, but this is replacement theology, people. A new institution, the church. Well, if it's the church that's the new institution, who's the old institution? And I'm closing with this. The old institution must be Judaism, or the synagogue, or the people of Israel, if the new institution is the church, right? And it's the church that he says that would bring Jew and Gentile together into a completely new body or new man, reference Ephesians 2.16. So in closing, we've taken our first bite out of Pastor David Guzik's commentary to Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17 on this idea of Judaism v. Christianity. Is Judaism and Christianity, are they incompatible with one another? Did it require... Jesus to bring this new covenant, this new gospel in to replace and displace Judaism. Do we have to throw the baby out with the bathwater? Or, as I've been challenging you over and over again in these commentaries, is it possible to retain the genuine truth of what Moshe taught and bring in the gospel and um, bring it into a fullness without throwing out and losing Judaism? Understand my um, uh, challenge here? Um... Are, can there can there really be a messianic Judaism? Is it possible to be a, a Jew and a believer in Jesus and retain your Jewish your your ties to Judaism and its religion as a as a Jew? And can you retain um, a Torah keeping lifestyle even as a Christian? Uh, those are some of the questions we've been tossing around in this particular study. But that'll do it now for Judaism v Christianity. Are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? These are the live internet studies. My name is Arobin Lyman Hanavi, and these studies are brought to you week after week. I'm actually a real-life Torah teacher at a real-life congregation, the Harvest Congregation, Kehilat Dunova. It's in Thornton, Colorado, and we'd love to have you join us one of these weekends if you are free and feeling uh, safe to get out and about despite the COVID situation. But if not, I invite you to go to our website at graftedin.com and join us by way of YouTube channel sermons. You can see on my screen right now uh, the current sermon entitled Your Spiritual Advisor uh, put on by Pastor Mark McClellan. So join us online if you're not available to join us in person. Speaking of online resources, find me online at tatesaytorah.com. That's my own personal Torah teaching website, www.tatesaytorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com, where I park all of my uh, commentaries. Most of these are written, like you can see in the cluster of um, links that you're seeing on your screen now, but many of them are being turned into audio and video commentaries, so bookmark this page and visit quite often. I also have a YouTube channel that you can find me on youtube.com forward slash C for the word channel forward slash Tate Torah Ministries all spelled out there without any spaces. And um, I upload comment, uh, comment content about every 12 hours. So it's 
easily daily, sometimes twice a day, as you can uh, tell. But uh, if you do hit my YouTube channel, at least do one of the uh, take one of the actions that you see dancing around the screen right now. Thumbs up, subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave comments for questions and concerns or your own thoughts, and share the uh, information with your friends and family in your own personal social media circles. These live internet studies are brought to you week after week, and uh, just some basic logistics. Um, this is episode number 181 for uh, June 18th on uh, the USA part of the world. And we meet Saturday afternoons from 5 p.m. to approximately 6 p.m. Central Daylight Time. The hour-long study is broken up into two segments, a 30-minute segment uh, on the um, study about Christianity v. Judaism v. Christianity, which we just finished. And then we have another 30-minute segment on exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity, which is kind of an apologetics section. And then we have a YouTube video uh, how do you fear the Lord when you love him? And we watch a different video each week, so you have to stay tuned for the entire study to catch that video. So I hope you can stick around. Join us week after week via Skype on your um, computer device, a smartphone, tablet, uh, iPhone, whatnot. You might have to install Skype to get the um, full benefit, but uh, Skype is free and membership is free, so hey, why not? But if not, at least go to my website, Take some time and pray about um, helping me to continue to bring these teachings to you week after week. And the way you can do that best is to donate to my ministry, which um, sends money to me directly. I'm at a place right now where I could sure use the help, um, seeing as how I've been unemployed for two years. And uh, this is a way for you to securely send monies to me so you can help me out and continue to bring these uh, teachings to you week after week. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn now to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity, and we have worked our way through part three of this three-part series on the nature of God, and we've talked first about in part one basically all about God the Father, and then in part two we talked about God the Son or the person and nature of the Son, Yeshua, and then in part three we've been working our way through uh, focusing on the role and person and identity of the Holy Spirit. Now we're ready for part seven. We've already just uh, finished now part six, where we kind of compared Unitarian and Trinitarian thoughts. We kind of wrestled with this idea of um, the Unitarian perspective on the Holy Spirit. And uh, now we're ready to move into part seven. Who or what is the Holy Spirit? Revisiting the Holy Spirit passages from paper two. All right, so let's just jump right into the study. Take the next 20 or 30 minutes to, to, to do some digging. All right, these are my own words, first of all, okay? I say, I do not subscribe to language that relegates the Spirit of God, viz. the Holy Spirit, to a mere impersonal force of energy who has decidedly been divested of his personal attributes, right? You already know from hearing my own thoughts that many Unitarian Christians, as well as many monotheistic believers in God, but even those who are not Christians, such as, say, maybe um, uh, mainstream Judaism or say maybe some Muslims, um, they relegate the Spirit of God either to a an impersonal force of energy, like something that God could shoot from his fingertips like the um, Emperor Palpatine does, or they relegate God to, uh, they relegate the Holy Spirit to basically another term for God, right? So those are two of the more popular perspectives. Either way, they reject the notion that there's a third person known as the Holy Spirit, a separate and distinct um, person or 
or or identity that is uh, portrayed in the scriptures, separate from God and yet equal with God in essence, right? The way we Trinitarians do. I go on to say, to be sure, non-Trinitarian Christian and quasi-Christian denominations and I'm going to list a few of them, and I, I'm, I'm fond of mentioning, but here's a kind of a, a smaller working list. We've got Biblical Unitarians on the list, Oneness Pentecostals, Iglesia Ni Cristo, Christadelphians, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, La Luz del Mundos, and then continuing on this list, we've got um, Church of the Blessed Hope, we've got The Way International, United Church of God, um, right, um, with uh, um, kind of Norman Vincent Peale, no, that's, he's not the one, he's not um, United Church of God, I can't remember his name, but um, these are lists of groups, and you can Google search these on your own, and, and there's more that I didn't name, but this is just a, a kind of a, a, a sampling of some of the more um, uh, more popular or familiar ones that you might have heard in conversation. These are groups that do not espouse to or subscribe to the idea that um, God is Trinity. God is a unipersonal God, not a tripersonal God. So in their own ways, that I mean, I'm not saying that all of these groups um, agree with one another. They have their own differences as well, right? For instance, in that list, um, the um, Oneness Pentecostals believe that the single God, the one true God, his name is Jesus versus Unitarians would probably say that his name is Jehovah or Yahweh or something like that. Um, Mormons are probably not going to say that the, that God is Jesus. I just got through watching some um, interesting Netflix um, uh, uh, commentaries, documentaries on Mormonism, Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, Fundamentalist, Latter-day Saints, F FLDS, and, and and some of the things that they believe, right? And, you know, um, Warren Jeffs and things like that. And it's so apparent to me that what Mormonism teaches and believes is so far removed from not only mainstream Christianity, but Trinitarianism also, also obviously, and even Unitarian Christianity, Mormonism's view of God and the fact that, that God has many wives in heaven and that God started out as a man and worked his way to Godhood, and that we can too as we um, affirm um, um polytheism, I'm sorry, sorry, not polytheism, but... Um, uh, um, Poly polygamy and things like that, you know, marrying of multiple wives so that we can attain the Godhead. I mean, it, it's become so apparent to me that what they believe is so far removed, what Joseph Smith handed down through his, his writings and his teachings and, and, and theology, that it's so error, so full of error and so different, even from some of the other groups in the list. So this is just a really diverse listing, but something that they all have in common which is why they all put them together in this group, is that they're all non-Trinitarian. So I say that there are others likely not listed here. But they often have similar beliefs with each other when it comes to, as I say, the issues of the deity of Yeshua Jesus and the personhood of the Holy Spirit. So most of those groups are very quick to say that Jesus is not very God in essence, and they're quick to say that the Holy Spirit is not a third person of a triune God or a trinity Godhead or something to that effect. I continue. Germane to our study is that almost without exception, the majority of these non-Trinitarian groups relegate the Holy Spirit to the category of a power from God, an aspect of God's personal power, an active force that God uses to accomplish his will, 
um, or something like that, or they talk about it, the Holy Spirit being the essence of God, i.e. a mode of God, a mask that resembles the person of the Holy Spirit, which uh, I say God can swap out with a mask that to we humans resembles the Father at times or that resembles the Son at times, right? So I'm talking about modalism, which is a perspective that oneness Pentecostals, even though they may not admit to that verbiage of modalism, it's apparent to me as you read through their theology that their perspective on God is quite modalistic in its um, articulation, in its verbiage, in its representation of um, God showing up in the Bible as God the Father sometimes, showing up as God the Son sometimes, and showing up as God the Holy Spirit. But it's really just one God, and his name is Jesus. He just wears different labels and hats and, and cha- interchanges them and things like that. He swaps out his avatar, right? So what we're dealing with is... Um, a commonality when it comes to looking at other groups who deny Trinity, right? Some common factors. So isn't it really kind of interesting that Trinitarianism and, and Orthodox Trinitarian groups have some really kind of what I would recognize as almost um, unique or um, isolating factors that set them apart from many other groups? It's almost like we are purposely, we as Orthodox Trinitarians, we're purposely taking the, the hard road, right, the more difficult way to understand God. I mean, after all, if you read through the Bible from Genesis through, say, Malachi, or Genesis through um, uh, 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 Second Chronicles, depending if you're reading a Jewish Bible versus a Christian, if you read the Old Testament, you don't really walk away with, it, with, the, with the concept that, Jesus, that God is Trinity, right? To be sure, you don't even get, you're not even giving Messiah Yeshua name by, uh, 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 by uh, you know, specifically by name. You don't even know Messiah's name. You know he's coming. You know he's going to be the one sent from God. You know he's going to be this one who who reveals God and brings us into right relationship with God and some other roles that he plays, right? But we don't, we're not even given his name until we start reading through the Gospels, right? The book of Matthew and things like that. That his name shall be called Jesus, right? The name that's revealed to Mary through the angels. But germane to my point on Trinity here, and specifically on the Holy Spirit and things like that, is that it's really um, difficult, and I admit this as a Trinitarian, it's really difficult to just put your finger on the idea that the Holy Spirit is a separate entity from God. I mean, it's very quite natural to read through the Old Testament, and when you encounter the passages about the Holy Spirit, to naturally assume and to walk away with the understanding that you're just dealing with God, who himself is a spirit, right? And it's, it's the Spirit of God, who is God's very own spirit. So, I go on to say that, um, you know, these other groups, they perhaps uh, sometimes conclude that the Holy Spirit is merely a manifestation of the one true God. And so it's, it's, it's not, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm not entirely too harsh on some of these groups for the perspective that they walk away with when they say, but it says here in the quote, right off an Old Testament passage, they, re- they, they describe a passage where they read a verse where it's clear to me that the passage is talking about God the Spirit, right? Um, so there are passages where that, I believe, is the way we're supposed to understand because God is a spirit. This is true. I believe this with, with a perfect faith, meaning it's a conviction of mine that God is a spirit. God is not a man, and God is not a dove, uh, or a donkey, or any other animal, or anything like, like that, right? So, God is a spirit. He's pure spirit. He dwells in unapproachable light, we read in the New Testament. And so, he, he, is, 
he should be represented as spirit in passages where we're just dealing with God the Father, right? The Father God, the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, or whatever you want to term or name you want to give him. But that's not the only representation we have, is the point I try to make and the challenge I bring up, try to bring up when I'm having dialogues with Unitarians like I do so frequently on my YouTube channel. In fact, I kind of take a survey and look at all the comments that I'm feeling week after week uh, through the over 500 plus videos that I have on my YouTube channel now. And over and over again, the comments that I have to deal with are comments that I have to deal with Trinity, right? So, um, <laughs> uh, I field questions on certain passages, and when they're Old Testament passages, I just kind of brace myself for, oh, here we go. They're going to be saying how the God is the Spirit, and the Spirit is God, and blah, blah, blah. So I get that. I get that. So I'm not too harsh on them. But when we're talking about God as a Spirit, I mean, I say in my I say as a question in my own commentary here, uh, kind of quippingly, jokingly, would this place the Spirit into the category of an Old Testament theophany, right? If we're talking about the Spirit as a manifestation of the one true God, we talk about um, the angel of the Lord and the Old Testament references where we see um, uh, Yeshua in his pre-incarnate form showing up in front of a man, and we realize that this is kind of a theophany or a Christophany, right? A manifestation of Yeshua before he came to earth in the body of Jesus, right, before he was born through the womb of Mary, right, the angel of the Lord, or the um, uh, the captain of the Lord's host that stood in front of um, Joshua with the sword drawn, and things like that. Is this a, and we recognize that as either a theophany or a Christophany, right, a manifestation of God in the person, the form of, a, of an angel, or the angel of the Lord, or the captain of heaven's armies, or something like that. But when the Holy Spirit shows up um, as a, as a as a, a form, you know, since the Spirit is the Spirit himself, is that a theophany? Is it a Christophany? Is it, is it a pneumatology? Is it a pneumophany? <laughs> right? I'm making it worse. All right. So let's keep looking through my commentary here. Um, keep going. I'm going to read another paragraph here in this study. I say, as we're beginning to ascertain non-Messianic Judaism... Unitarian Christianity and Orthodox Trinitarian Christianity, they all have their sometimes opposing views on this enigmatic topic, right? Sometimes opposing. There's things that we can agree on. All three of those groups will believe in one God, right? All three of those groups believe in the, the reliability uh, of the scriptures, uh, at least the parts that they hold to be true. Like, like Judaism believes that the Old Testament is reliable, Right? So do Trinitarian Christians. So do Unitarian Christians. And we all believe in the um, monotheistic aspect of the fact that there's one God, not multiple gods. We all believe the fact that he's the only God that should be worshipped, etc., etc. So, so there are things that we, that we can agree on, but we have our sometimes opposing views. I go on to say, however, as familiar and helpful as the ancient Christian creeds and confessional formulas are to historical and orthodox forms of Trinitarian Christianity, who or what the Holy Spirit actually is, I say must at the end of the day be derived from the only authoritative sources that, that we have. And these are the ones that I say contain Hashem's complete and inspired stamp of approval. And which ones are those? The scriptures. And that's it. I respect the creeds. I even admire them. I even have memorized a few of them. 
although I've forgotten by now, but I, in my earlier days, when I was raised as an independent fundamental Baptist, uh, I think we were required to uh, memorize the Apostles' Creed or one of those two. And if you are a, uh, a Christian listening to my podcast or watching my YouTube video today, and you've been raised in either a Catholic setting or an Orthodox setting, like Greek Orthodoxy, or a Lutheran setting, where you've got a lot of liturgy, in your service or in your, in your in your practice, then you probably also have memorized one of the creeds. And I tell you, there's a lot of good stuff in those creeds. I mean, it's, they're very well formulated. Um, there's some of it that's a little questionable, a little ambiguous to me, a little equivocal. Um, but um, for the most part, it's the most of the creeds are spot on, and I don't have a problem um, um, reciting them. But at the end of the day, I realize that the creeds are man's. Uh, formulation. They are they are they are they are a tool that men use. They're not the word of God, and so they're they could be fallible. In other words, they're not inspired. Uh, they're not canonized scripture the same on the same level as uh, the Bible that I hold in my hand. So that's the only point I'm trying to make. Um, other than that, um, I say in my commentary, uh, those sources just so happen to be. I'm sorry, those uh, uh, creeds. They happen to be very, very helpful, but there's only one authoritative and inspired stamp of approval, and what is it? That source just happens to be the Tanakh and the Apostolic Scriptures. Those are the only two that I can say with a perfect faith, again, when I say perfect faith, it means with a convicting faith, that are um, relevant to speak into my life unequivocally, that are relevant to speak into my life without reservation. If I have... Um, problems with something that men say, I turn to the Word of God for clarification, not the other way around. You know what I'm saying? What I'm saying if there's something that I don't understand in the Bible, I don't turn to a man's word to, to, to say, um, be the final authority. I do turn to commentaries. I mean, that's a good practice because God, God speaks through other men, and that's something that I recommend. If you've got questions about a Bible passage, first pray about it and turn to the Word of God. Let Scripture interpret Scripture. That's always going to be your best practice, bar none. However, sometimes that doesn't solve the problem, right? There's not enough resource for you, or you you don't have the ability to reach into the original languages, and so you need a little bit of help. And so then it's okay to turn to a specialist on the topic, right? Someone who can speak Hebrew, Greek, or Aramaic, or someone who's had some seminary training, or someone who's worked with the passage long enough, has some historical insight, etc., etc. And in that case, sometimes you don't even have to use believers, right? You can use historians who know Bible history better than your average pastor that can still give you better insight than your average pastor, even though the those historians might not be believers. Okay, uh, just turn to the tool that works the best. All right, but at the end of the day, it's the authoritative word of God that's not the Apostolic Scriptures, not the Book of Mormon, not the doctrines of, and covenants that Joseph Smith put together, not the Quran, not the Buddhist Scriptures, not the Hare Krishna Scriptures, none of those other writings, uh, not the Jehovah's Witnesses extra books and 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 uh, catalogs and and dictionaries. None of those resources are going to be able to match the authority and um, majesty and uh, beauty of God's Word. So uh, make sure you're making the Bible your final authority. I go on to say, and I will close with this tonight, therefore, let's resist some of the passage, I'm sorry, let's revisit some of the passages that we briefly surveyed in part two when we were primarily investigating whether or not Yeshua is indeed very God-veiled in human flesh. And so you can go back through my commentary through part two 
and look at some of those verses. But um, you don't really need to. There was a table there. And what I say in my commentary is that there are verses that appeared under the column in that table for the Holy Spirit. And we're going to zero in a bit more closely on those verses. And so we're going to do them in the order in which Carm listed. And then um, you'll see, and I'm not going to deal with this tonight, but that I reproduced the table from part two here in part three again, but I took out the table for God and the, under Father and the table for Yeshua under Son, and I only retain the one for Holy Spirit. But otherwise, I, it's the identical table. It just doesn't have all the same verses because not all the verses deal with Holy Spirit. So we'll begin to look at this and work our way through this. And this could take a little bit of time because we're going to go verse by verse. For instance, on the first one where um, the Holy Spirit is called God, we'll then begin to see how Acts 5, 3-4 and other parts references uh, using language that helps us understand that the Holy Spirit is in fact very deity and full deity and that he should be worshipped as deity, not as a lesser being or a lesser component or an impersonal force of God or something like a pet of God or or just a uh, um, uh, an attribute that God bestows or a gift that God gives to people. Uh, but he is very God and he deserves to be recognized as God. And so we'll begin to look at that next week. But something that you're going to want to be keen to as we're looking through this table and working our way down through it is realizing that the Bible, and I'm closing with this, the Bible speaks and gives us the identity of God's um, nature in pieces here and there. And you have to do two things. You have to be able to juggle, on the one hand, a single passage and be able to look at all the details of that passage, mining the, the scriptures for all the nuggets that are found in the English, the Greek, and the Hebrew as the language applies. But at the same time, while you're holding that single passage in your hand and massaging it and looking at it and, and peering at it and, 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 and examining it and picking it apart for all of its, its parts, at the same time, time, you don't want to lose sight of the fact that that one passage exists in the context of either a chapter, or a book, or a letter, or a section of the Bible, or a genre, right? You know, like if we're dealing with the Psalms, or we're dealing with the Book of Revelation, or we're dealing with apocalyptic literature, things like that, or the whole Bible as a, as a whole, right? The, from Genesis all the way through to uh, Revelation. You never want to remove a verse out of context and make it its own pretext, right? Giving it its own meaning, separate and distinct from the rest of the Bible. That's bad hermeneutic. That's a bad way to interpret your Bible. So it's a, it's, it's a wrestling, I'm sorry, it's a, not a wrestling match, it's a juggling match. you got to juggle the singular importance and relevancy of that passage at the same time holding it in the context of the other parts that it's connected to uh, for its greater meaning. And that's the best way to allow the Bible to interpret the Bible. And that's why I say that at the end of the day, this is my own perspective, the other non-Trinitarian groups that I mentioned earlier up in my commentary, right, the Unitarian Christian groups and things like that, the monotheistic groups like uh, mainstream rabbinic Judaism, one of the primary reasons in my experience that they fall short in their explanation of God is because too often they find their own pet passage or scripture reference that they kind of um, build their theology around. They say, see, God can't be Trinity because of, and they just kind of park out on one verse. And that becomes kind of the bumper sticker slogan poster child for their theology based on just that one passage. To the exclusion or some, almost, I don't know, ignorance of all the other passages that do show up in the Bible that give us um, clear 
Trinitarian or triadic references to God's nature and insights and clues into the fact that we're dealing with a a, um, com- a, a God who, who is a complex unity. So that'll do it for exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn to our liturgy for tonight, Isaiah chapter 2, and we're going to start developing this. I'm just going to read uh, a few different verses. I'm not going to read all of it tonight. I'll, I'll, I'll build up to it. I'll, I think I'll read like uh, two verses uh, tonight, and then eventually I'm going to read one through four, maybe next week, uh, two through four, three through four next week, and then the final week, the third week, I'll read one through four, all of it. But this is such a great passage uh, as regards um, the question of, does Israel's future include Torah relevance? Well, the answer must be yes, because according to Isaiah, there's a passage that's future-facing, hasn't happened yet, that Isaiah envisions that the Word of God will be emanating from Jerusalem. Indeed, the Torah will be the standard that Israel is using as their form of righteousness. It will go out toward the entire world. All of the nations will actually flow to Jerusalem. This hasn't happened in history yet. It happened in maybe in, in little bits and pieces and kind of foreshadows or or portends or or uh, um, um, uh, what's the what word I'm looking for? Kind of precursors, right? Where maybe in Solomon's day we had the nations coming to Solomon and, and seeking his wisdom and bringing their riches into uh, Solomon's kingdom and things like that. People seeking uh, the Lord. Uh, but there's still a future day when all the nations will stream to Israel and the Torah will be going out the other direction. So um, let's begin to look at this uh, as part of our liturgy. I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2 tonight. And as I mentioned, next week we'll read 3 and 4, and then the week after we'll read 1 through 4. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1, starting over here on this side of the page. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And uh, we know this is repeated for us in another prophet. I think it's Hosea, if, I'm, if I remember off the top of my head, um, verbatim uh, nearly. But uh, the point is, this hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened yet. It's still part of the latter days, the future Right. Let's read the Hebrew on the right side of the page. The Hebrew says, "Hadavar Asher Chaza Yeshayahu Ben Amos Al Yehuda Vi Yerushalayim." Verse two says, "Vahaya ba'achrit Hayamim Nachon Yie Har Beit Adonai Berosh Heharim Venisa Migvaot Venaharu Elive Kol Hagoyim." And that'll do it for the liturgy from the um, Tanakh, from the Old Testament section. Let's turn to the book of Galatians and notice how Paul seems to push back against this idea of righteousness as is rooted in the Torah. And it causes us to have to stop and understand how Paul could interact with his Torah as a believer and be so seemingly negative when it comes to the role of Torah in the life of a redeemed person. And it begs the question as to how Paul uh, interacted with um, this particular phenomenon in his day. As we encounter it in Galatians chapter 2, we're not going to read all of this. We're just going to read eventually chapters 2 verses 15 through the end of the chapter, which I think is verse 21. But for our... um, Liturgy, just, let's just read two verses, just 15 and 16, to set the context. Uh, Paul says in verse 15 of chapter 2, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. 
Wow, that's that's kind of heated language right there. Gentile sinners, right? Ethnon homartoloi. All right, and then in verse 16, he says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Sounds like he is just leveling a stinging rebuke against Torah observance, doesn't it? Well, as much as we want to read that back into the text, I don't think exactly that's what he's talking about, and we'll look at this on a different day. But for now, let's just read the Greek as part of our liturgy, and then we'll watch this short little video for tonight. Verse 15 in the Greek over on this side of the page says, Hemes fuse judaioi kai uk ex ethnon hamartaloi. Verse 16 right there says, Edates de hatiu de kaiutai anthropos ex ergonamu in me diapistios Christu Jesu kai hemes es Christon usan epistusamen hina de kaiuthomen ek pistios Christu kai uk ex ergonamu hati ex ergonamu u de kaiuthesatai pasa sarks. And that'll be our liturgy for tonight. Let's turn to the short little video. We'll watch this, and then we'll just close in prayer. Short Questions, Short Answers by Torah Teacher Ariel and eBible. They provide the questions and I provide the answers. That's kind of the way it works there. All right, here's our question for tonight. How do you fear the Lord when you love Him? The word fear in the Tanakh is the Hebrew word for yare. Tanakh is the Old Testament, that is. And it's true that the word must be understood from context. Sometimes it refers to reverence or respect, etc., like we read in Leviticus 19.3. And sometimes it refers to worry or deep concern, etc., like we might read in Exodus 15.16. In the Hebrew way of interacting with the scriptures, yare is essentially an emotion that motivates a person towards an action, kind of like a driving force in a person's life to help them make a decision on something. Understand what I mean so far? It's emotion plus uh, action working together within the person. Basically, Yare describes the volition of a person because the same emotions can drive two different people in two different directions. Understand what I mean? The challenge for us is to allow our Yare to move us in the direction that God says is right and best for us. God created our Yare and we are to use it for his purpose. Since the topic is fear, let's see this in action in a few verses from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 121. Let's read that. See the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession as the Lord your God. Lord, the God of your fathers has told you, do not fear or be dismayed. Fear in this verse would either keep ancient Israel from going into the land of promise or overcoming fear by trusting in God would move them to go into the land. See how that works? Fear in this passage kind of works uh, on both sides of the, uh, of the uh, equation here. So let's keep looking at a few more verses and see if we can understand how fear and action work together, sometimes to move us the way that God wants us and sometimes to uh, prevent us from moving. 
Deuteronomy 6.2, that you may fear the Lord your God and your son and your son's son by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be long. Fear in this verse motivates God's people to keep all his statutes and commandments with a promise to prolong their lives. This fear could be reverence, or it could also be fear of God withholding his blessing if one disobeys his commandments. Understand that? We could have fear going either way. Fear motivating us to keep the commandments, or uh, fear of God's punishment, which will also, again, motivate us uh, to keep his commandments. Let's look at Deuteronomy 10.12. We'll spend a little more time on this verse. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? Now, fear in this verse can actually function as a metonym, that is, a word which plays the role of a stand-in for another closely related word. It's similar to a synonym. And we'll flesh this out a little bit, so don't worry if you can't figure this out. But notice the verse says, Fear the Lord your God, walk in His ways, love Him, and serve the Lord. We're going to pick those uh, words apart. Notice there's some some verbs here. Um, Fear in this verse is actually closely linked to walk, love, and serve God, as Deuteronomy 10.12 hints at, by putting fear, walk, love, and serve, all of those verbs, all in the same mix of actions and emotions experienced and taken together as a comprehensive whole. Are are you guys seeing that in this verse? We got an emotion, which then drives an action, which then drives an emotion, which then drives an action. We go from fear to walk, to love, to serve. Notice the kind of leapfrogging going on. The emotion, the action, the emotion, and the action all over again. So, I really like this verse because as the original question that we uh, read suggested, this verse uses the word fear and the word love in the same verse, both with God's intent to motivate us towards genuine fidelity and loyalty to Him alone as our God. And that's why it's important for us to see these together. So let me close with my personal favorite verse of the Bible that uses the word yare. Uh, I'll go ahead and uh, uh, read the Hebrew this time as well. We have Psalm 111, verse 10, which in the Hebrew there it reads, Reshit chokma yirat Adonai, seichel tov l'chol osehim, tehilato omedet la'ad. And the translation in the English is, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Check out my podcasts, which are available on iTunes. You can search for me in the store under the search term Ariel Hanavi. But if you prefer to watch your theology, check out my YouTube channel. Subscribe to my YouTube channel and click the bell for notifications. New content is added weekly or even daily. And that'll do it for our video for tonight. Let's close in prayer. Abba, bless your name. And I'm so blessed to be a part of a, uh, a, a study where I can share my thoughts with others and interact with people of like mind. 
Um, I pray that you'll continue to protect them and bless them and raise them up and give them a voice. Give them the opportunity to, sh- to witness and share their testimony with people around them so that we can all become part of this wonderful family of yours. Thank you for sending your son Messiah into the world to become our advocate, to become our substitution for sin, to become the um, uh, payment for sin, uh, the one who brings us into this right relationship with the Father. Bless his name. Thank you for uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit who reminds us of our salvation, so helps us to uh, have this blessed assurance and reminds us of the words of the Master. Continue to raise us up and make us strong in the Word. Help us to be um, careful students of your um, words and your teachings, and we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Yeshua. Amen. Oh,